0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science in the City, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceinthecity.org. I'm Nadia Popovich. Who are we? Where did we come from? And what does it all mean? Humans have been grappling with such questions for thousands of years. And while modern science can answer at least two of these questions, those answers don't come in one neat package. But historian David Christian has been teaching us to look at the big picture for more than two decades, combining fields from cosmology to biology to anthropology. His now-famous course on big history weaves the entire story of life into one grand tale, from the Big Bang to the present. Christian is professor of history at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia, and author of the award-winning Maps of Time. Beyond the classroom, his online big history course has become a hugely popular teaching tool used at universities around the world. He is currently working with Bill Gates to develop a free version for high school students. This October, Christian spoke at the Academy to offer the public a little perspective into our big history.
1: I've been teaching since 1989 courses... Um, that are now known as big history courses. I I coined the phrase big history in 1991. I'm really not sure that it's the best description, but it's somehow sticking. So so we're stuck with the idea of of big history. And it's not bad in a sense, because it, uh, apart from anything else, it's a reminder of the great unification that happened in the sciences with Big Bang Cosmology, which linked the science of the very small and the very big. So, for 20 years I've taught big history courses, um, these, What these do is they try to teach the whole of history. Uh, in fact, when I, when I began teaching them, because I thought, as a historian, I'd like to know what the whole of history is. And I had the idea that it might be a bit like the geographers' equivalent of a world map. So I thought, what is the world map for a historian? And I very quickly decided that if I was serious about this question, I had to consider going back to the origins of the universe, to the Big Bang. And that meant trying to learn some science. So that's what I was doing. But this story is based on modern scientific scholarship. And when I say that, I I should explain that what what I mean by this is not just the natural sciences, it's based on scientific scholarship in history and the humanities, anthropology, as well as the natural sciences. So by scientific scholarship, I mean something perhaps slightly broader than what it might often mean. I mean scholarship based on rational, careful, rigorous, logical use of good evidence. Um, Once I started teaching it, I was forced to change how I change how I think about the relationship between science and ancient forms of knowledge. I had to, th- I had to sort of try to get very clear in my mind what science does and what it doesn't do um, because I realized, and in fact, it was my wife who's, who worked as a professional storyteller for many years and is very interested in Jung. She said, what you're doing is telling a modern origin story. A modern creation myth. I and mean, in fact, I'll use those phrases interchangeably in, the, in this talk. So once I realized I was telling a modern origin story, certain questions arose for me as a teacher. And the central one was probably this. Should I teach my students that this story is true and all the other stories are false? Now, this was a particularly charged question because I was teaching in Australia. So this is a country where Stone Age technologies survived until just 250 years years ago. Uh, The ancient systems of knowledge were all around you. And I felt on the one hand that to say modern science had got it right, everyone else had got it wrong, was insulting. But I also felt it's more than that. It's not quite right, because we know in 100 years' time, many aspects of modern science are going to look slightly different. So what is the relationship of science to traditional forms of knowledge? That, I realized, was what I had to figure out. So that's the background to this theme. I want to explore that question and I hope that thinking about science in this way is a fruitful way of launching this very interesting looking series on science, on the history of science. Okay, origin stories, creation myths. I'm using these phrases as synonyms. I Assume that what this means is rich collections of linked stories about how things came to be as they are. Sort of cosmic maps of time. And in fact, that idea of a sort of mapping of everything gave me the title for my book, which is called Maps of Time. But there's a problem in looking at traditional origin stories. They are often very rich, very beautiful, uh, full of odd subtleties. But their power is extremely hard to appreciate from outside. I think this is so important. I'm going to spend a bit of time trying to illustrate this. And it may be, that may be one reason why we've tended in the modern world to be slightly dismissive of origin stories. So I'm going to talk them up in this, this lecture. Um, here's, here's one way of putting this from the Encyclopedia Americana. A myth is understood in its own society as a true story. It is only when it's seen from outside its society that it's come to acquire the popular meaning of a story that is untrue. So I think we have to be very much aware of seeing stories from inside and from outside. From outside, origin stories, traditional origin stories, often look, they're exotic, they may seem beautiful, but they seem lifeless. They can't. They're they're flat, they're thin, they can't do anything to us, like pressed flowers. Or here's another metaphor which I think might be good to have in your mind as I talk about traditional origin stories. Pinned insects. We see them dead. The people who used them and told them saw them alive, and we have to be very much aware of that in thinking about them. Okay, what I'd like to do now is actually go through one traditional origin story. So we have something to compare the modern story with. But you need to be warned about how many filters there are between us and this origin story. I'm using extracts from a a wonderful anthology of origin stories by Barbara Sproul called Primal Myths. And what these come from is the work of a French anthropologist, Marcel Griol. And he's recounting conversations with a man called Ogotemeli, who is a wise man of the, the Dogon people of Mali. Ogotameli himself is clearly editing the story as he tells it. He's offering an edited version to an outsider, and you'll get a glimpse of that from some of the extracts that I use. In addition, this has been translated from French into English. And finally, it's been further edited by me. So we need to be aware of all these layers of filters if we're going to make the effort to appreciate what's going on in this story. Okay, so let's go with this story. Uh, part one. And the, the, the chapter headings, by the way, are mine. They're, they're, once again, one form of editing to try and help you fit through this. The stars came from pellets of earth flung out into space by the god Amma, the one god. He had created the sun and the moon by a more complicated process, which is the first attested invention of God, the art of pottery. The sun is, in a sense, a pot raised to white heat and surrounded by a spiral of red copper with eight turns. The moon is in the same shape, but its copper is white. It was heated only one quarter at a time. I don't know about you, but I find that image of the moon being heated one quarter at a time very beautiful. What it means, I'm not sure. Ogotameli was anxious, and this is a reminder that that Griol is talking to us. Ogotameli was anxious to give an idea of the size of the sun. Some, he said, think it is as large as this encampment, which would mean 30 cubits, but it's really bigger. Its surface area is bigger than the whole of Sangha Canton. And after some hesitation, he added, it's perhaps even bigger than that. Part two, Amma creates the earth. The god Amma took a lump of clay, squeezed it in his hand, and flung it from him as he had done with the stars. The clay spread and fell on the north, which is the top, and from there stretched out to the south, which is the bottom of the world. The earth extends east and west with separate members like a fetus in the womb. It is a body. That is to say, a thing with members branching out from a central mass. This body, lying flat, face upwards in a line from north to south, is feminine. Its sexual organ is an anthill, and its clitoris, a termite hill. being lonely and desirous of intercourse with this creature, approached it. That was the first occasion of the first breach of the order of the universe. Part three, diversification, complexity, and trouble. Ogatomele ceased speaking. He'd reached the point of the origin of troubles and of the primordial blunder of God, and he said, If they overheard me, I should be fined an ox. This is a very clear reminder that he is editing the story as he's going. He's now going to tell Griol something that he feels he probably shouldn't tell him. But I think we can be pretty sure he's also hiding stuff. At God's approach, the termite hill rose up, barring the passage and displaying its masculinity. It was as strong as the organ of the stranger and intercourse could not take place. But God is all powerful. He cut down the termite hill and had intercourse with the excised earth. This is violent, brutal. um, This is clearly a a breaking of some sort of ethical or aesthetic or moral pattern. Um, But the original incident was destined to affect the course of things forever. From this defective union, there was born, instead of the intended twins, a single being, the Thos Oreos or Jackal, symbol of the difficulties of God. Part Four, Life and the Nummo Twins. God had further intercourse with his earth wife, and this time without mishaps of any kind. Water, which is the divine seed, was thus able to enter the womb of the earth, and the normal reproductive cycle resulted in the birth of twins. Two beings were thus formed. Now, these are wonderful creatures. They were green in color, half human beings and half serpents. From the head to the loins, they were human. Below that, they were serpents. Their red eyes were wide open, like human eyes. And their tongues were forked, like the tongues of reptiles. Their arms were flexible and without joints. I love this image of of these kind of uh, uh, just like Harry Potter. There's no no bones in them, no joints. The bodies were green and sleek all over, shining like the surface of water and covered with short green hairs, a presage of vegetation and germination. These figures were the Nummo twins, water gods, who later play a crucial role in the creation of the Earth. And here's the final part. Part five, humans, African and European. He said that while Africans were creatures of light, emanating from the fullness of the sun, Europeans were creatures of the moonlight, hence, their immature appearance. Now, that's the story. And I've tried to remind you how filtered it is. So we need to think very hard about it in order to try and think what's really going, going on. So let me try and describe some features of that story. And eventually I'm going to try and compare this with a modern origin story. Seen from outside, there are certain striking features. This is not a complete list of, of all at, at all. First, it's universal. This is part of a huge complex of stories that try to embrace all origins. It tries to be a total story. It's part of a vast cycle. Secondly, and you may have missed this, it faces a problem at the very beginning. Now, most stories can begin with a world that already exists. An origin story begins with nothing. So there's a problem of bootstrapping. How do you start an origin story? And this is a problem that no origin, sol- uh, or origin story can solve. What does Ogotomeli do? He arbitrarily announces that there's a god. A god is posited without explanation. This is a sort of literary bootstrapping. Okay? And, and you'll, you'll immediately note that Christianity and many other religions do exactly the same thing. Thirdly. There's a theme of increasing complexity. The universe seems to begin quite simple. Then more characters appear, more complications. Division, diversity, complexity. There's a growing cast of characters and objects. And these objects have new properties so that new things are created as the world evolves. And fourth, well, let's be frank, from outside, it's just absurd. It's illogical. For us, it has no power to motivate motivate action. None of us are going to be so struck by the story that it's going to change our behavior. We see it from outside. It's absurd. Now let's try and see if we can look at it from inside or or think about it from inside. And there are certain things I think we can probably say with, with some conviction about this story. First, from inside, origin stories have... Now, I'm not going to say it's true, because we can probably never say that. What I prefer to say is they have the feeling of truth. They feel right. They feel like the way the world is. And in this, they're very uh, similar to modern science. Origin stories contain much good, tested, empirical information. They're inductive. That information has often been tested. Here is a sort of Popperian process of falsification going on. Um, They are built, in other words, on the best available information of a given society. Let me take this slightly further. Uh, They're authoritative in several senses. If you are a youngster in a society, you'll learn the story first from authoritative elders. On the right is Burnham Burnham, an aboriginal elder and storyteller, who I happen to know, and he, he died about 10 years ago. Wonderful character. Um, Below I don't think I need to explain this uh, authoritative elder below So it's retold by respected elders It's tested empirically and we often forget this about origin stories, but this is sort of what I mean Ogotomeli's story if you think about it actually contains much empirical information There's much in other parts of the story that I didn't include. It includes lists of important animals Law about procreation and sexuality, details of major farmed grains, symbolic accounts of human anatomy and the world's geography, a lot of empirical information that people in that society needed to know. And this is information that has been tested in the daily life of that community. Now, the point is that the tedious technicalities are often ignored in collections of origin stories. When we get them, the collectors have often shed all of those details because they're pretty boring for a modern person, Uh, a, a real origin story goes on and on and on, because it's full of these details. Now, secondly, first, they're authoritative. Secondly, they should not be taken too literally. We often forget this. We often assume that the people who heard them were naive and treated them literally. And we should not assume this. They all contain paradoxical and metaphorical elements, and they are open to qualified skepticism. And I'll just give one illustration here and this, again, is from Ogotomeli. Griol once asked Ogotomeli about a curious detail in a story in which there are large numbers of creatures, and they're all standing on a step that is one cubit deep and one cubit high. This is like the question of how did Noah get all those animals into the ark? Okay, So, so Griol asked, how is this possible? And Ogotomeli's reply is wonderful. You, you, can, you can hear the weariness in his reply. He says, All of this had to be said in words, but everything on the steps is a symbol. Symbolic antelopes, symbolic vultures, symbolic hyenas. Any number of symbols could find room on a one-cubit step. And Griol adds that the word he translates as symbol literally meant word of this lower world. So we do not need to assume that people heard traditional creation myths too literally or too naively. We should assume that many of the hearers heard them with some subtlety, with some reservations, with some skepticism. Uh, Finally, origin stories from the inside are powerful. They frame knowledge, they provide a sort of map of everything, and they steer behavior. They are rich, living, credible, inspiring cosmic maps. And here's a quotation from Barbara Sproul, which I think captures this very well. She writes, creation myths are the most comprehensive of mythic statements, addressing themselves to the widest range of questions of meaning, but they are also the most profound. They deal with first causes, the essences of what their cultures perceive reality to be. In them, people set forth their primary understanding of man and the world, time and space. We've looked at one creation story. This slide is just a reminder of one more that is much more familiar to people in a Western society dominated by the origin stories of Christianity, which were combined for almost 2,000 years with the cosmology of Ptolemy. So let me just remind you how this, too, fits many of the qualities that we saw in Ogotomeli's story. It's universal. It's a total map. It's absurd from outside. a modern scientist may have some respect for the science that went into Ptolemy, but, but the story now looks absurd. And of course, it looks absurd if you are brought up within a completely different cosmology. It raises the problem of beginnings. And in Christianity, the problem takes the form of the cute kid at the back of the class who says, OK, so who made God at the beginning of the Genesis story? It's a story of increasing complexity. It's authoritative, it's based on trusted sources and significant empirical evidence. It's open to some revision, limited, but some revision, and it's powerful. It framed ideas of the universe and right behavior in Europe and the Christian world for almost 2,000 years. Okay. so. That's a way of trying to get you to think about traditional origin stories, I hope in a slightly different way than you're used to. Now what I'd like to do is tell a modern origin story, and this is really the story that I tell in my big history courses. Now, I, it, takes me, um, it took me 48 lectures with a teaching company, and it takes me 13 weeks, two lectures a week with my students. So th- th- what, what I'm gonna do now is give you a highly compressed, non-technical version. And as with Griol and Ogotomeli, I'm going to take extracts. OK, so we're seeing this a bit like a pinned bug, too. So seat belts, please. OK, part one, the origin. In the beginning, 13.7 billion years ago, Okay, I think we need to pause immediately at that point. What is a billion? Uh, When I'm teaching my students, I have to spend a lot of time trying to convey some sense of scale. I'll come back to this issue later, but but in the meantime, here's, here's a quick and dirty thought experiment. Count, start counting one and two and three and four, one every second, and try to get to a million. It's gonna take you 11 and a half days of solid counting all the way. Now count one billion seconds. The instinct is to think this is a bit more than a million, but of course it's a thousand times more than a million. So how long is it going to take? Does anyone want to go at answering? Brilliant. Yes. Thank you very much. It takes, I had 32, right? uh, it, 32, 33. Um, that's to count to one, one billion seconds. And what we're talking about is 13.7 billion years. So we just need a reminder of how, What a huge scale this is. At the beginning, we don't even know if time or space existed. We don't even know if nothing existed. Then, something appeared. That thing was tiny, we should probably be thinking smaller than an atom. It was incredibly hot. Now, intuitively, I'm trying to tell this story as a storyteller, not primarily as a scientist. But intuitively, this makes sense, because this tiny thing contained all the energy of the entire universe. Of course, it was hot. Squashed that much energy into a small space. And it was also expanding very fast. And again, intuitively, this makes sense. Pack that much stuff into a tiny space, it's going to be busting. It's OK. So this is the Big Bang. And we think of it as like an explosion. And the first second or two, a lot happened. The rate of expansion began to slow. After an initial burst in which it was faster than the speed of light, at billions of degrees, matter and energy were interchangeable. Now this is what Einstein showed, of course, and this is what his famous formula captures—the idea that energy and matter are interchangeable. Then. We can think of this as a process by which energy and matter slowly begin to separate. And remember, this is all within the first second or two. Energy begins to stabilize. Energy appears in four main types. They include gravity. I should probably also add anti gravity, which we now take very seriously. Also known as dark energy because we haven't a clue really what it is. Energy also appeared as electromagnetic radiation, photons of light. Matter began to stabilize in two main types. Dark matter, we call it dark matter because we don't know what it is. It probably makes up 24% of the mass of the universe. And atomic matter, which is what we're made of. Quarks, electrons, atoms. The world we know is made of atomic matter. And in a sense, atomic matter is much more interesting than dark matter because you can do things with it. At the moment, it looks as if you can't do that much that's interesting with dark matter. Most atomic matter then disappears as matter and antimatter, antimatter is matter with opposite charges, destroyed each other, turning back to energy. This is all in the first second or two. After a few seconds, expansion is slowing. Temperatures drop to just a few million degrees. That is the sort of, uh, the the universe is a hot plasma. It's a bit like the center of the sun. You have subatomic particles. Atoms haven't formed yet. And that means all all atomic matter is charged. So the whole universe is crackling with electromagnetic energy. And energy and matter are still entangled. And then, and this is one of the great turning points in the modern origin story. After about 380,000 years, electromagnetic energy and atomic matter separate. And again, the naive description of what happened goes like this. There's a major phase change. Uh, Let me explain what I mean by phase change, because we're going to see phase changes all through this story. A phase change is what happens when steam turns into water. So imagine steam at 150 degrees. Slowly, you reduce the temperature, 130 degrees. It's still steam. It's, it's cooler, but it's still steam. 110. Nothing great. Much has happened. It's, it's cooler, but it's still steam. 90 degrees. Bam. Everything changes. The entire quality of the steam changes. And we're going to see phase changes like this all through the modern origin story. And this is how this phase change goes. As the universe expands, temperatures fall until eventually, the electric charge between protons and electrons is powerful enough to hold them together. Before this, the entire universe consists of exposed, charged particles. Suddenly, the universe goes electrically neutral. And this means that light can flow through it more freely. And we can detect this flow of energy today, and we call it the, back, the cosmic background radiation, the CBR. So matter and energy have, have, uh, have, have separated. Okay, now that's the start of the story, of the modern origin story. And I hope you agree, it's, if you, if you are a cosmologist, you're probably so familiar with it, you may need reminding of how bizarre, utterly bizarre this story is. And I've missed some of the more bizarre parts of it. It's very strange indeed. It's as absurd, frankly, I think, as some of the elements in Ogotomeli's story. It's a very, very strange story, but it's based on so much well-attested evidence that most cosmologists believe something like this happened. In other words, this story for our world has the feeling of truth. It's compatible with the best knowledge of modern society. Okay, part two, increasing complexity and diversity. This now becomes a central theme in this origin story. The universe began quite simple in many ways. You have clouds of hydrogen and helium atoms. Remember, hydrogen has just one proton at the center, helium has two. These are the simplest possible elements. There's also the cosmic background radiation, there's dark energy, there's dark matter. That's about it. There are no galaxies and stars. No heavier chemical elements, no carbon, no nitrogen, no, 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 no gold, no silver, no uranium. There are no planets, there are no living organisms, and of course, no human societies. And that's what I mean by saying the early universe is simple. Um, over 13.7 billion years, more complex things appear. Most of the universe is simple today. We need to remember this, if I were to, if, if you were to be picked up, randomly placed, somewhere in the universe, and you reached out to grab something, I guarantee what you would grab would be close to absolute zero and close to a vacuum. It would not be very interesting indeed. But in parts of the universe, more complex things have emerged. And we, of course, live in one of those pockets of the universe. Now, what is complexity? Here's a. It, okay. Complexity is fantastically complex. Uh, Sorry to be banal, but but it really is. So what I'm going to offer is a a quick and dirty definition that'll take us quite a a long time uh, in this story. Complex things have multiple components. Those components are diverse and varied. Think of a jumbo 747. They also have linking mechanisms. They are structured. They are arranged in very precise patterns. They are, particularly if they're far from thermal equilibrium, they are driven by energy flows. They're associated with huge energy flows. And they're held <laughs> together by those energy flows. We have to eat food. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm really talking about. Fourth, more complex things generate new emergent properties. Suddenly, we see qualities we had never seen before. Put the bits and pieces of a jumbo jet together See it in a scrapyard, it's just bits and pieces. Put it together correctly and you have a machine that can carry you through the air. Finally, they die. Complex things die. When the energy flows cease, when the music stops, the structure falls apart into its simpler components. So here's a quick and dirty definition of complexity. Now let's go back to the story of increasing complexity. And let's begin with the creation of stars, one of the major stepping points in this story. Stars are formed as gravity magnifies tiny variations in temperature and density. This slide is, I I, I imagine, it's become iconic. I imagine everyone's seen it. It's a mapping of the cosmic background radiation. The red areas are slightly warmer, slightly denser than the blue areas. So what it's describing is that moment of the universe Three hundred and eighty thousand years after the Big Bang, when energy and matter split, and what it shows is a universe that is not completely uniform. Now, gravity gets more powerful if there's more stuff, so it grabs on the denser areas and clumps them together, and this starts a powerful process. We think that even dark matter is clumped together by gravity, and probably embedded in those huge clumps is lots of atomic matter. So this graphic shows dark matter with the light spots of atomic matter embedded in it. So we can think of huge clouds of atomic matter slowly being collapsed by gravity. As they collapse, gravity gets stronger within each cloud. The dense regions get even denser. Temperatures rise. Hydrogen atoms within them collide more and more violently until eventually a threshold is crossed and we encounter a phase change. When temperatures at the center reach 10 million degrees, hydrogen nuclei fuse together to form helium nuclei, and they release huge amounts of energy. So this collapsing cloud at the center, now suddenly we have the equivalent of a hydrogen bomb that's going to keep exploding for billions of years. And that furnace at the center props it up, and prevents the collapse going further. And that is a star. We have something new, a new object in the universe. And this object we can reasonably describe as more complex than things that existed before. Fusion goes on in the core. Heat is generated in the center. In the sun, it takes about a million years to reach the outer outer surface. Uh, New supplies of hydrogen come from outer layers. Heat and light then goes into the surrounding universe. And that energy flow, of course, is what sustains life on Earth and allows the creation of new forms of complexity elsewhere. So stars represent a new level of complexity in this story. And they're still forming today. If You go on the web, you go to the Hubble site, you can see fantastic, beautiful images of regions of star formation. And here are just three. Okay, so that's one extract. And it's an attempt to give give a sense of how we see increasing complexity. We see these thresholds being crossed, phase changes at which suddenly new characters, new objects appear in the story. Now, I'm going to cut out huge parts of the story. I'm just going to tell you what I'm cutting out. We get a whole series of phase changes. And here are some of the more important ones. Each one involves tiny changes that at some point lead to a new entity, which in turn allows further forms of complexity. So complexity is building on complexity in some environments, specifically around stars, where you get these energy flows. Now, here are some of the major thresholds. New elements form in dying stars. So after the explosion of uh, supernovae, we find scattered through galaxies are new elements, carbon, uranium oxygen, nitrogen, and so on. So the, the universe becomes chemically more complex. New chemicals allow the formation of new astronomical objects, including planets, objects such as planets which you couldn't form in a universe with just hydrogen and helium. On some planets, at least one, <laughs> but I think, I don't know if there are any astrobiologists here, I think the betting is that life is pretty pervasive. They recently identified a planet not too far away from us, which is the same size as Earth, and probably has liquid water. So the betting is there are lots of planets like Earth. And as life appeared early on Earth, there may be a lot of life. Anyway, life appears, much more complex than non-life. And life evolves, eventually becoming multicellular. And I'm going to pick up the story again about 100 million years ago. Our Earth and Sun were formed four and a half billion years ago. We're now very late in the Earth's history. This is the Earth in the late Cretaceous period, 65 million years ago. And this is a world rule. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) It shocks me as well, I keep forgetting I put that damn drum, drum roll in the slides. Anyway, so this is a world ruled by dinosaurs. And remember, I spent a lot of time teaching freshman students, so I, I need to wake them up periodically. Um, and the dinosaurs are wiped out. Um, Walter Alvarez, the geologist who did the pioneering work to demonstrate this, uh, is now teaching a big history course at, at Berkeley. Walter Alvarez and his colleagues proved that about 65 million years ago, a meteorite landed off the Mexican coast. Its impact was like a nuclear war, created a nuclear winter, and the result was to wipe out most species of dinosaurs. And that is critical for our origin story because with them removed, our mammalian ancestors could evolve and flourish and fill the niches That they had left. So we're products of this resulting mammalian radiation. I can't resist just reminding you of something that may be familiar to many of you. If that asteroid had been on a trajectory five minutes earlier or five minutes later, we would not be here. We can guarantee that. This would still be a world ruled by dinosaurs, maybe very intelligent dinosaurs, we don't know. So we're products of the resulting mammalian radiation. Bonobo chimps, as you all know, are extremely close relatives. They are, we share about 98.5%. Again, that's an iconic statistic, but it's powerful, nevertheless. They almost certainly have a very rich emotional life. They have complex politics. They are very, very like us in many ways. So now part three, human history, the history of our species. Homo sapiens appears approximately 100,000 years ago. We can argue about this. 200,000, 60,000, some would say. And I'd like to argue that our appearance marks a fundamental turning point in the history of the planet. And it's certainly a critical moment in this creation story. So let me explain. What makes humans different? We're so close to chimps in so many ways, but our trajectory has been radically different. Look around us. Uh, It's an utterly different world we've created and made. And this, I think, is the essence of the thing. So I'm going to go through a quite complex argument very, very quickly. And I'm very happy to field questions on this later. All other animals on Earth have what I think we can reasonably describe as static technologies. That is to say, they have a repertoire of devices for extracting energy and resources from their environment. That repertoire does not change fundamentally during their time on Earth. Uh, And that means there's a limit to their range and their population size. Their behaviors don't change radically. Now, the simplest way of describing what makes us different is that our technologies are dynamic. They keep changing. We keep inventing new ways of getting resources. I I could use the word technology, but I deliberately want to put this put it this way, to stress the ecological significance. What we're very good at is finding new ways of extracting the energy and resources we need to support ourselves from the biosphere. And once you get a species whose technologies keep changing, there's no obvious limit to its range and population size. And furthermore, that species will change its behavior over time. Now that change of behavior over time is what we call history. And I'm a historian. So this seems to me close to a definition of my discipline. Uh, Think about why there are no departments of chimp history. It's actually a serious question. Now, why this matters. If a species technology is improved from generation to generation, it will slowly control more and more of the biosphere's resources, and we can make powerful Predictions. These are technically retrodictions, of course. Its range will increase. It will learn to use more and more environments. Its population will increase as its range increases. Eventually, dense, socially complex communities will appear. And eventually, it will control so much that other species will begin to suffer. Now, it's very important not to think this is a modern story. This is a story that begins in the Paleolithic, with the origins of our species. And this is a powerful map that I hope will persuade you of this. Here's the range of chimps. The important point about that is that we have no evidence that that range has changed significantly in 100,000 or even a million years. Chimps are behaving, they're very intelligent, but they're behaving like all other animals. Now let's look at the human trajectory. Our ancestors appeared somewhere in East Africa. By 100,000 years ago, we're beginning to get hints of humans spreading more widely in Africa. By 60,000 years ago, we get very strong evidence that some small groups of humans have moved outside of Africa. We can see the range expanding. Now, this movement into Eurasia is not that extraordinary. Many species had made similar movements, but now the story does start getting extraordinary. And this is not just because I come from Australia, but this migration is a very powerful signal of something. No large mammal made this migration. It required navigational skills, It required ecological skills as the species adapt to entirely new plants and animals. Now, think of this migration. About 30,000, certainly by 25,000 years ago, there are humans not just in Russia. This is Ice Age Russia, okay? Uh, Now, just imagine yourself plonked in the middle of Ice Age Russia and ask about how you would survive. This requires a lot of technology using fire, the ability to hunt mammoth, and so on. So this graphic of human migrations in the Paleolithic is a graphic showing a species capable of an unprecedented technological and ecological creativity. It's a very powerful graphic about our species. Now, as our species acquired more and more resources, even in the Paleolithic, other species began to suffer. And this is just one illustration. In Australia, we have evidence that some 60 species of megafauna went extinct soon after humans arrived. Now, humans may not be the only cause, but they're probably a pretty significant cause. There were wombats the size of hippopotamuses. There were kangaroos, not quite as tall as this room, but very, very tall indeed. An astonishing range of megafauna just vanished. Now, if I'm right, what is the source of this creativity? If I'm right, this is a very, poses a very deep question about us as a species. It's a, what is the source of our history, of our creativity as a species? And I think this is a very exciting moment to be asking this, because my impression is that answers are emerging from many different disciplines. And I'm going to try to give you a summary of what I think is the best available answer. And it goes like this, language is the key but not just language. We're talking here about a threshold once again. Many species can communicate. In fact, we're becoming increasingly aware that that birds can communicate, primates can communicate more subtly than we realized. But they cannot uh, communicate efficiently enough to preserve shared information over many generations. Um, I can give some reasons, some what well, I think are powerful reasons for thinking this is true. The most important is that if they did, we would see evidence of it over time. And also, primatological studies show cultural acquisitions getting easily lost amongst primates. So, Homo sapiens crossed a threshold in linguistic efficiency. We acquired a limbi- linguistic ability which was suddenly could move information faster with greater precision than any other primate. Let me just give you one, one quick and dirty illustration of what I mean by the power of human language. Um, I, I'm, I'm gonna say something, and I think something's gonna happen inside your heads as a result, and it's actually something kind of strange. This is something a, chimp, a room of chimps could not do. So what I'm gonna say is, pink elephant. I'm hoping, that a picture popped into your minds. And the weird thing about that picture is it's a picture of something that's never existed, never will exist, that none of you have seen, that I have never seen. So I have moved quite a complex piece of information instantaneously from my head into yours. This, as far as we know, is something chimps can't do. So our language has crossed a threshold in efficiency. And if we can share information that efficiently, information can accumulate in the collective memory. So collective learning becomes cumulative. This is a tiny threshold. This is why I keep talking about the word threshold. And it amounts to a phase change. We have a new type of animal on planet Earth. Here are some of the signs of that newness. This is a graph of human population growth. In the Paleolithic, there is actually slow slow change. Slow growth, it's very slow by modern standards. With agriculture, it accelerates, and then this is the terrifying spike of modernity the last two or three centuries. So this is an accelerating process. Collective learning, as it accumulates, feeds back onto itself, developing new synergies and getting more and more powerful. And one result is increased human control over energy. Now, these figures are very rough and ready, of course. But what they suggest is if you estimate total human control over energy today, and you divide by the number of humans on Earth, we find that each of us is consuming or controlling, not consuming in our bodies, of course, but controlling 230,000 calories per person. Well, that, What that is saying is roughly we are controlling 100 times the energy we need to survive. Now, what sort of species can do this? This is a huge increase in complexity. Brains have a hundred billion neurons, each connected to thousands, perhaps millions of others, computing in parallel. Modern human society links those brains into a network with seven billion potential nodes connected through language, phones and the internet, computing in parallel. This is an astonishing increase in complexity. Now, where's it all going? Optimists see this as a wonderful story of increasing complexity, increasing creativity. Pessimists fear that our growing control over resources is simply going to sap the resources of the biosphere as a whole. Now I'd like to just summarize the chronology of the story. We've lost chronology a bit. Um, if And this is a simple way of getting the chronology of this modern origin story. Let's imagine the universe began not 13 billion years ago, because our our minds are not designed to grasp a billion. We're we're designed by natural selection to grasp periods of 50, 100 years at most. So let's imagine the universe began 13 years ago. If so, the Earth would have existed for about five years. Large organisms with many cells would have existed for about, anyone want to guess, by the way? I've given the absolute figures on the right, 600 million years, wild guess, seven months, okay. The asteroid that killed the dinosaurs would have landed, anyone wanna try a guess? Three weeks ago, this is me with a calculator, so if, if, if it's out by a day or two, don't, don't worry too much. Hominines bipedal bipedal primates, great apes, would have existed for three days. Our own species, Homo sapiens, for 53 minutes. Agricultural societies for five minutes. The entire recorded history of civilization for three minutes. And modern industrial societies for six seconds. So that gives you a sense of the chronological structure of the modern origin story. Now I want to end just with some comparisons with Ogotomeli's story. How similar is this to other stories? Well, in many ways, very similar. I think more more similar than we often think. It tries to embrace all knowledge of origins. It's universal. It faces a problem with beginnings. We do not know how to get from nothingness to that tiny thing that was the Big Bang. We have to deal with it arbitrarily. There's a theme of increasing complexity. It's absurd from outside. Fundamentalists find it absurd. It's authoritative from the inside. It has the feeling of truth. It's not to be taken with absolute literalness. Now, one of the reasons for saying this is metaphorical. There was no bang. I mean, there was no bang at the Big Bang. Um, But, Every cosmologist knows that in a 100 years' time, many of the details of this story will have changed. We should not tr- treat this without a little skepticism. And it's powerful. It shapes the understanding of an emerging global intelligentsia. But now I'd like to talk about three things that make this origin story very different, because it is very different from traditional stories. And the first may seem surprising. I think it's scale. Um, And I think scale may be the thing that gives modern science its power. By scale, I mean that whereas traditional origin stories draw their information and test that information within the bounds of a given society, this is the first origin story that draws on and tries to sum over knowledge from the entire world. And that knowledge is tested globally. That, I think, is why the scale of the information collecting, the rigor and scale of the testing processes, mm-hmm. that, I think, explains the extraordinary power of modern science. Um, it's tested rigorously throughout the world, and, and the, the, the Popperian tests that all origin stories undergo are conducted on a much greater scale, and much more toughly. It's accepted. Globally, it's the first global origin story. It's not bound to a particular religion or culture. If you make a claim in New York and it's refuted in Tokyo, you're in trouble. And that is not true of many traditional origin stories, which can be refuted only within the bounds of their own society. Now, a second thing that's different about it, which is not at all obvious, is I've said it's known to a global intelligentsia. But apart from that, it is very poorly known. I know this from teaching students. Very few students have a sense of this story. Now, this is actually bizarre. Because traditionally, origin stories were the very foundation of education in all societies. So that today's society does not teach this story is very, very strange indeed. And that's one of the reasons I feel so strongly about the importance of trying to teach this story in some form, even without the scientific sophistication that many scientists might want in our schools and our universities. Because without it, students are left with a sense of knowledge as fragmented, without a sense that there's an ultimate unity knowledge, and I think that may be at the heart of some of the educational problems we face today. And they're also left with a sense of humanity as divided. In a world of fragmented knowledge, the idea that humanity itself is fundamentally fragmented makes lots of sense. You're living in a fragmented world. And finally, this is a question, not a statement. Traditional origin stories, and I didn't talk about this, because they tell you they provide a framework for all knowledge, also provided ethical direction. They gave moral, they contained moral imperatives. So my question is, can the modern origin story do this? Does it already perhaps contain the beginnings of moral imperatives? I can't see any Ten Commandments in modern science. What I can see is a lot of information that is a powerful prompt to deep and rich ethical argument and discussion. So my question is, and this is the question I'd like to leave you with, if I'm right that this story should be regarded as the modern global equivalent of traditional origin stories, is it also true that eventually it will slowly acquire more and more ethical and moral power as a result? Thank you very much for your attention.
0: Thanks for listening. Science in the City is a nonprofit program from the New York Academy of Sciences. This means we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program like our events and our website. For more information on Academy membership and to support Science in the City, log on to scienceinthecity.org donate. And as always, we'd love your feedback here at Science in the City. Send us an email to scienceinthecity at nyas.org. See you next week.